This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Fun and... Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm your host, Paul Anthony Nelson, Cowabunga Dudes, and joining me <laughs> in the virtual uh, studio via our Nokia uh, mobile phones are <laughs> Sally Christie. Hello, Paul. Um, nice acid wash jeans you got there, and and Flick Forward. Hello. I actually, well, I actually uh, do have some acid wash jeans, but um, <laughs> they don't really fit me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to comment on your polka dot top. Um, I'm wearing a nice sports coat. Uh, so, as you can, may or may not be able to gather, we're going to take you back to a wonderful time called the 1990s, where a young person could comfortably wear a sports coat and buttoned-up <laughs> shirt and not be accused of ripping off David Lynch, where fashions of all black and splashes of colour and shapes could live side by side in harmony. Just make sure your shirt's tucked into your jeans, guys. And a mobile phone was just something to call and call, text, and play snake on. We'll be looking at the directorial debuts of three of the 90s most influential filmmakers. Going in chronological order, we'll be starting with Noah Baumbach's first film, Kicking and Screaming, from 1995. Then Wes Anderson's first feature, Bottle Rocket, from 1996. And finally, Sophia Coppola's debut, The Virgin Suicides, from 1999. So slip on your round John Lennon shades, throw on your Westy shirt and baggy jeans and join us as we dive into the 90s. But before we look at the week in movie news, we wanted to remind you that it's April amnesty time here at Triple R. And we're committed to be your sta- being your station in isolation, staying on air to keep you connected with fun talk and fine tunes during these bizarre times of coronavirus social restrictions. But we can't do it without you. Uh, we know cash is tight and not everyone is going to be in a position to be able to support us. But if you can, please consider subscribing, renewing your subscription or donating to Triple R this April and go into the draw for some amazing prizes, including a pack of five books from Scribe Publications, showcasing the best of local and international fiction or a gift voucher for Northside Records. So jump on to rrr.org.au to subscribe or donate now. I sound like a pirate. (laughs) (laughs) And now it's time for the Primal Screen News Bulletin for the week. So over the last week, there's, uh, most of the news this week is just obituaries. Uh, we said goodbye to some cinematic greats, including the terrific character actor Brian Dennehy, who was most memorably the sheriff who pushed John Rambo too far in First Blood, was an alien with the power of eternal youth in uh, the Cocoon films, teamed up with Australia's own Brian Brown in the two FX movies, played real and... Um, and played real-life kids party clown and horrifying serial killer John Wayne Gacy in the TV movie To Catch a Killer. I really love that one. You know, I haven't seen it. I love To Catch a Killer. I think it's great. It's a really good one. 
I really, really should because I was mad for Dennehy in the early nineties. There was a whole sort of bunch of movies that I'd caught up on from the mid eighties, like Silverado and the first FX. And then stuff I saw in cinemas at the time, like presumed innocent and gladiator, not, not the Russell Crowe gladiator, the early (laughs) nineties, completely forgotten boxing movie starring twin peaks as James Marshall gladiator. Um, Yeah. I, I was really surprised that when Brian Dennehy passed away that the headline, I forget what um, news site I was looking at, uh, billed him as the sheriff from um, First Blood and that's kind of it. Oh. Sorry, Rambo. But, yeah. so that, that No, was, it was First Blood. Yeah. yeah. That, that was kind of what most people remembered him for and I always just kind of had in my head that he was a much more well-known presence than that, which, yeah. But very sad that he's gone. It is. He died at age 81 of a heart attack. Um, we also uh, lost a French actor, at, at, also at the age of 81, uh, Philippe Nahon, who was a large man who made his debut in uh, Jean-Pierre Melville's Le Doulos in 1962, but was probably most famous as the killer in Alexandra Arge's High Tension and as the murderous butcher anti-hero in Gaspar Noé's debut feature, I Stand Alone. Oh, love that film. <laughs> He's like a singularly so terrifying good. presence. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, we also lost cinematographer Alan Davio, Alan Davio, who was most const- uh, closely identified with Steven Spielberg, shooting his breakthrough short film Amblin, working as a director of additional photography on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, before becoming Spielberg's cinematographer on E.T., The Extraterrestrial, The Colour Purple and Empire of the Sun. Davio passed away of complications with COVID-19 at the age of 77. And in our last obituary for the week, COVID-19 also cost his 86-year-old exploitation filmmaker Joel M. Reed, who is most famous, or should we say infamous, for making the 1976 video nasty Bloodsucking Freaks. Um, he is quite the character. We, uh, The film group that I work with, Cinemaniacs, we screened Bloodsucking Freaks a few years ago and we got um, Joel to do an introduction for us and... Yeah, it proves to be quite colourful. <laughs> <laughs> the story off air. <laughs> oh, wow. All right. I definitely want to hear that. <laughs> um, and also, too, if you're a budding filmmaker, um, check it, um, if you want to check out Sundance Film Festival collab site, they have made their Sundance collab masterclasses, normally sessions at the festival, available online. These include episodic writing with Glenn Mazzara of The Walking Dead, screenwriting with Inside Out and Captain Marvel's Meg LaFauve, and documentary filmmaking with the director of The Tale, Jennifer Fox. These and many more uh, online masterclasses are available at collab, that's C-O-L-L-A-B dot Sundance dot org slash learn. And we might pop that up on the, uh, on the website as a link if you want to check out some of those. So now join us in the living room as we adjust the tracking on our first film of the night. Okay, I'm going to write selfish girl abandons helpless boy for overrated country. Overrated? You've never even been to Prague. Oh, I've been to Prague. Well, I haven't been to Prague, been to Prague, but I know that thing. I know that stop shaving your armpits, read the unbearable lightness of being 
fall in love with a sculptor, now I realize how bad American coffee is thing. Beer, they have good beer. How bad American beer is thing. Kicking and Screaming from 1995 was the debut feature film directed by Noah Baumbach. After college graduation, Grover's girlfriend Jane tells him she's moving to Prague to study writing. Grover declines to accompany her, deciding to instead move in with several friends, all of whom can't quite work up the energy to escape their university's pull. Nobody wants to make any big decisions that would radically alter their lives, yet none of them want to end up like Chet, played by Eric Stoltz, the professional student who tends bar and is in his 10th year of university studies. Flick, as a long-time resident of the Halls of Academia, <laughs> did you feel personally targeted and attacked by this film? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was kind of funny because I have... Um... I now that I have a lot of time on my hands uh, in my house, I was like, oh, I should really get back into finishing that thesis I'm working on. <laughs> you make me watch this film and I'm like, oh, God, <laughs> I should really get onto it. Um, I, yeah, I watched this uh, last night and um, I'm a big Bombard fan. Marriage Story was one of my favourite films from last year. I, my, the first film I saw of his was actually The Squid and the Whale. Um, which I love. I think it's an amazing script and really great performances. Um, I really enjoyed Greenberg. I, I know not a lot of people aren't that big on it. Um, Francis Ha, of course, is amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, I really like his stuff. I had never got around to seeing this, though. So this was the first time I'd watched it. I didn't, uh, I didn't find it that captivating. It was a little bit cringy, maybe because it is uh, an analysis or like, um, a self-analysis of being sort of in your early 20s and studying all these philosophical ideas and exploring literature and um, having a read on everything. And I just felt a bit cringy because I may have been a bit like that in my 20s. So <laughs> I, was, I felt a bit too seen in this film. Um, they're kind of obnoxious. And I think that what it captures really well is that sort of weird liminal space when you have finished up your your undergrad and you're sort of meant to be ready for the world. And there's a real sense of um, instant nostalgia and the characters comment on it about um, about that idea quite regularly throughout the script. And I kind of, I, I was quite drawn to that. And I think that Baumbach has a really clever sense of that um, that kind of philosophical um, meandering style that I did enjoy, but it wasn't when I compare it to his other films, it just doesn't quite hold up. I think this, the probably the strongest part of this film is the relationship between Grover and Jane, which are, which is kind of told through these flashback scenes. And some of it's a little bit clunky, but he was we was talking off air, and he was twenty five when he when he made this film, so super young. It's really amazing script for for that young. Um, and I thought that, yeah, Grover and Jane's relationship was quite interesting and it allowed for, I feel like it was really interesting watching, seeing this film as like the training ground for what would become Marriage Story. Mm -hmm. I could imagine a lot of these characters as what becomes Marriage Story. So even, um, oh, who played Jane? Olivia Diabo. Mm -hmm. she, she has a very similar uh, look to Scarlett Johansson in Marriage Story and I thought there was a lot of similarities between Adam Driver's character and Josh Hamilton's and I saw like a lot of links and it's kind of lovely returning to a uh, director's first film and seeing what kind of things capture them the most and you can really get a sense of what um, Bombach is interested in and what he wants to put on screen. 
I um, watched this for the first time yesterday as well. I hadn't seen this and also loved Marriage Story a whole lot. I hated this movie so much. <laughs> oh my God, this film, like, it rubbed me up the wrong way so, so badly. Like, I haven't disliked the film this much in a really long time. <laughs> Yeah, because you're the least likely to hate stuff of the three. Yeah, I know. I'm always just like... <laughs> so this is interesting. <laughs> but, um, yeah, this... Oh, where do I start? Okay. Um, I just... It it was cringeworthy in, for me, every way possible. It really felt like... Um, I don't know it was his first film, but it felt just like... a. Film students first go at having a crack at something that just turned out to be horrible. Everything seemed so um, just, it was just trying so hard on every level. And I know that everyone in this film was meant to be, you weren't meant to like them or connect with them and they're meant to be these irritating characters. But I, I really struggled to get to the end of this film. Like I really, <laughs> really struggled with it. Uh, Parker Posey, she's amazing. Yeah, Grace. She was absolutely fantastic in it. There were also a couple of scenes involving a video store, which I enjoyed. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I just I found it really difficult to watch. And that kind of thing where you were saying before, Flick, how he's trying, you know, sort of capturing what people go through, I guess, in academia in their early twenties. Um, Gaspar Noé did a beautiful job of that in Love, mm-hmm. and which also really, I guess, had its head up its own ass, like this film does, but just did it in a much better way where it caught that really pretentiousness of people that are studying in their early 20s. But um, it just flowed better. And, of course, Noé's a more accomplished filmmaker at this point in his career. But, yeah, for this, I just... Oh, I really, really dislike <laughs> I actually already knew that you didn't like it because I made a joke about my cat refusing to watch this film with me. <laughs> Sally responded thing like, I don't blame him. I blame him, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I struggled. Yeah, it's funny because I don't know how much of this film is defensible in the 2020s, but I'm giving it like... Something about 90s rom-com dramas featuring self-absorbed white bread 20-something slackers <laughs> trading ratatat witticisms with postmodern cockiness in stark contrast to the stultifying quarter-life crises they're going through, they're just the snuggliest of warm blankets for me. It's something about, like all of these films, like, you know, like of, of that time, you know, like Swingers is kind of the king of these films to me. Yeah. Like I just, I, like there's something... I don't know, there's something that just feels so disarmingly quaint about mm-hmm. these kind of films these days. Um, I do I do agree that it is clunky at times. It, um, you know, like, as we said, he's 25. I don't think he even made a short before this. I think this was his first no, time yeah. being behind a camera. Yeah. Like, I don't think he had any idea. And it kind of shows to a certain extent. And I think there's some... Um, like I think it's funny because this the structure meanders at ninety six minutes it probably wears out as welcome by a good ten minutes like it should have been like an eighty five minute. ten minutes into it. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I thought you were saying. <laughs> um, 
Look, I, like I, I gotta say, like I think there are some really good zingers in here. Um, I'm always up for taking. Sorry, Flick. I'm always up for taking the affection of piss out of those seemingly forever on the precipice of leaving tertiary education for the outside world. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm there with you. Don't worry. <laughs> um, I thought um, uh, Chris Eigerman, who plays Max, is often he's like in Whit Stillman films, which are again of this sort of genre. Um, <laughs> He brings his kind of brand of unique charisma to this sort of thing. Um, Carlos Jacket, who was a guy who appeared in a lot of Joss Whedon shows, um, he I think he pops up in Buffy, Angel, and Dollhouse all at some point. Um, he mm-hmm. plays this kind of dim man-child character in this, and I found him quite amusing. He's always he's always like threatening to go home with his parents with like a pile of bags and a poster for John Woo's The Killer. And he's also um in Seinfeld, and I coincidentally watched the episode of Seinfeld that he was in last night after I watched Kitchen and Swimming. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, he is the pool boy that got fired. <laughs> Ramon. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he's great, man. Yeah. I always like him, right? He's really good. I think he's really funny in this. Um, and Eric Stoltz is kind of perfection in his role in life as the Gen X elder statesman. Although I found out that he was born in 61, which technically makes him a boomer, which like kind of made my whole world crumble. Cause like, cause like he is the elder statesman of Gen X, surely. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's, look, I mean, all these characters have their heads up their own ass, but it's kind of the point. Like mm-hmm. it's this sort of, and I feel like, like there's a lot of reviews saying that Bombach is kind of, he's not far away enough from the experience to sort of see the irony in it. I, I don't know. I thought there was like a piss taking irony throughout this whole thing. Um, but I understand uh, Sal completely. Like if you're like, if you're not on this wavelength, then it's like the, the characters are aggressively annoying. It was just like a really like a super awful Brett Easton Alice novel that was trying to be funny. Like that is, that is- that's a, a really good call. Yeah, that is very similar. <laughs> yeah, actually, this reminds me of when I was doing my undergrad and I became really obsessed with Brad Easton Ellis, and I was only reading his novels. So this probably like fits into that whole. That You're whole probably having conversations like this. I possibly was. Yeah. Ooh, I, I hate myself a bit. That's the thing. Like, if I take the kind of the the you know the nineties white bread quarter life crisis. Um, warm blanket feeling out of this, I'd probably be closer to you guys. Like, I'd probably like, mm, this isn't great. But there's just something about that subgenre that just tickles me, tickles my nostalgia bone. Um, so I'm kind of giving it a pass on that. But I love it though. Like, it still really seems to be quite well loved. I was shocked by that. It's in the Criterion <laughs> Collection. Yeah, All, that's I- one thing. All the three films we're talking about tonight are in the Criterion Collection. I did not realize that until after I'd seen them all. Um, crazy story regarding the way this got made, um, just to go out on. Um, so I noticed Jason Blum's name was on the credits. Jason mm-hmm. Blum, who, of course, is the, now the titan behind Blumhouse, um, the horror production house. Um, turns out Jason Blum was Noah Bombach's college roommate, and his family knew Steve Martin. Like, Jason Blum did not know Steve Martin, but someone in his family knew Steve Martin. So Jason Blum just went, I've got nothing to lose, sent him the script. Martin dug the script, offered to put some money into it, and Blum's like, no, just write me a letter saying how much you love it. And Martin did so very kindly, and Blum tore the cover off the script, 
replaced it with copies of Martin's letter and sent that out oh. to all of the studios in town. And that's how they got the film finance. Wow. So Steve <laughs> Martin scary. got this movie made. Wow. Indirectly. Yeah, I love that story. Um, so if if you want to test your tolerance for uh, <laughs> for uh, white bread slackers uh, overeducated and uh, rat tatting witty dialogue at one another, you can check out Kicking and Screaming on. Uh, it's now streaming on Netflix, and it's available to rent or buy on YouTube Rentals and Google Play. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flick Ford, Sally Christie, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. Before we check out our next film, just another reminder that Triple R is currently having our April Amnesty subscription drive. As services like Community Radio stay on air to keep you connected during this challenging time, Triple uh, R aim to be your station in isolation. So if you're in a position to afford to support us, we know everyone, uh, not everyone can, and that's fine. But if you can, please consider digging as deep as you can and uh, subscribing, renewing your subscription, or donating to Triple R this April, where you will go into the draw for some cool prizes, like a $250 voucher to spend on books at Bar- uh, Brunswick Bound, or a three-month coffee subscription where our friends at Wide Open Road deliver their finest beans to your door every two weeks. To subscribe or donate or get in the running for such fabulous prizes, jump on to rrr.org.au. Now, if you're just tuning in, um, tonight is a primal screen uh, where uh, we are spotlighting uh, 90s indie icon film debuts. So we looked at uh, Noah Baumbach, uh, he of Marriage Story and Francis Ha. We looked at his first film, Kicking and Screaming. And now we're going to pop in a VHS and hit play on our next debut. Are the explosives really necessary here? I think it'd be a lot more simple if I just walk up to the door alone. I, I think that that would be... Why are you undermining me, man? How much bullets does this thing take? Bob, I'm paying attention. God damn it! Bottle Rocket from 1996 was the first feature film directed by Wes Anderson. Upon his release from a mental hospital following a nervous breakdown, the directionless Anthony, played by Luke Wilson, joins his Frank Dignan, joined by, uh, played by Owen Wilson, who seems far less sane than the former. Also pulling in their hapless pal with the amusing name Bob Maplethorpe, um, played by Robert Musgrave, um, Dignan has hatched a harebrained scheme for an as-yet-unplanned robbery that somehow involves his former boss the supposedly legendary Mr. Henry, played by James Kahn, who also runs a landscaping company. These plans are complicated when, on the way, Anthony falls for a Hispanic maid named Ines, played by Lumi Cavazos, and Dignan starts to lose his bizarre hold over him and Bob. Sally, did you find yourself wanting to don a yellow jumpsuit and run away with the Wilsons? Um, I did want to put on a yellow jumpsuit after this. Uh, this wasn't my first viewing of Bottle Rocket. I have seen it a couple of times and um, I've also seen the short a few times as well, which is for those that are interested in seeing Wes Anderson's short of this is easily accessible, I think, just via YouTube. And it's interesting to see how he has developed this from a short into a feature. Um there is so much fun to be had with this film. It is hysterical. Owen Wilson's character, Digman, is so funny. 
is so loose and so unhinged. It's just um, really delightful to watch. Um, it's one thing that I find really interesting about Bottle Rocket is seeing Wes Anderson without all the kind of um, pizzazz that we're used to seeing Wes Anderson with. Uh, his elaborate sets and all this kind of stuff is stripped away in Bottle Rocket, I'm assuming for budget reasons and, you know, uh, practicalities. But, yeah, I, it's really interesting to see all that taken away and still kind of see this really strong essence of him as a filmmaker and it's instantly recognisable as his work, um, the dialogue that he would use, the character relationships that he um, forms, you know, these, these little gangs that he has in every movie. Um, so that's, yeah, one thing that I find really joyful about this. Uh, the pacing in it at times I find is a little bit clunky. Um, I think just initially for me the pacing of it is really quick. It starts off really, really fast-paced and it, I don't, know, I don't know, it could just be me as a viewer, it takes a little while to wrap your head around exactly what is going on in this. Um, but then he kind of finds his feet with it. But, yeah, Bottle Rocket is a real joy to see. Yeah, isn't it? I just saw it. Um, I haven't watched it since it, uh, I would have seen it probably oh, 2000 and something, maybe <laughs> early 2000s. And I haven't, I've probably watched it a few times since then, but this is my most, um, yeah, probably, yeah. Anyway, it's been a while since I've seen it is yeah. basically what I want to say. Uh, this is so much fun. I laughed very heartily throughout this. Um, I, I I just love Wes Anderson. And I, as you are saying, Sally, like you really get a sense of Anderson in this really like stripped back fashion. And I, I think in, because of that, I actually enjoy this more than a lot of his other films sometimes. Yeah, like yeah. I think that step away from making it too stylized and there's a real roughness to this. And despite that, the strength of the characters and the interplay between them mm. like really shines through. And I love that there's a real tenderness to a lot of the humour as well. Like there's such an opportunity for the jokes. Um, you know, it's kind of there's a lot of... Um, characters within it who are in this gang and there's lots of opportunities where they're trying to um one up oh sorry I just knocked my mic um they're trying to one up one another but it's always done in this really like um sort of demasculating way like I think that there's this really he's all he's got that throughout all of his films like I think the Royal Tenenbaums is a great example of that with Gene Hackman's character where Anderson just wants to sort of tease out those things and then there's, there'll be this real like softness with between um, male characters often and I just love seeing that and I, I really love uh, watching Luke and Owen Wilson together on screen I find them both hilarious and especially Owen Wilson is so good in this and I think it's the first film where he says wow it's when he meets is that really yeah where it started wow yeah. so this is <laughs> well wow, this was their debut yeah, this is the first yeah. film for Luke and Owen Wilson. Yeah, so this is oh, the first. I didn't realise it was um, Owen Wilson's first film as well. Mm. And oh. yeah, and and off and also just um, out of Anderson's work, this is obviously Owen Wilson wrote the script with him, and he also did um, oh, Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums, and I, I actually like all three of those a lot more than some of the other ones, and I think mm. there's something about that that Owen Wilson Wes Anderson. Uh, collaboration that really gets to this fantastic level of humour. I, I really love that they're pairing so much. Um, 
yeah, there's a great bit. I was just thinking, and I, I forgot to research this before I came on air, mm. but there's a scene in which they're robbing a bookstore, which was absolutely hilarious and possibly my favourite scene in the whole film. But they put it, they put tape on the nose. And <laughs> there's a there's a scene where they also are telling the man off the, who they're robbing, saying like, don't you have bigger bags? And those two things, those exact two things happen in Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, um, Guy Ritchie's film. And mm. I was just thinking, is that like a homage? Is that like some weird little What, the homage? tape on the nose? Yeah. Wow, I don't remember that. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a while. I've, I've got to, yeah, I've got to check. I should have checked that up before I got on air. Got on air. But, um, yeah, it was just weird when I was watching it. I might be wrong, but yeah. I feel like there's some weird interplay there. Anyhow, this we is an amazing film. We should noses tonight. Before yeah, because yeah. <laughs> that seemed like the most pointless thing. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I love that bit as well when it's just like that. I, it's just so original. I think that's what I love about Wes Anderson's work. It's just these these scenes where you just like that just wouldn't happen. And he just, uh, yeah, it's such a um, it's a real delight going back to his first film. And we were talking again off air about how old he was, and he was twenty six when he made this. Like again, yeah, I think to have this kind of humor down at such a young age because like this film really is a riot. Like it is just. Yeah, you're laughing the entire time. And it's got so many um, formal markers of his mm-hmm. of his um, authorship. So, like, the whole uh, Rostrum camera thing where mm-hmm. they foreground that. Um, they've also got that slow motion um, sort of scene at the very end. And, yeah, and even just, like, the directly fat characters directly looking at the camera and that mm-hmm. sort of centre framing, that's all there in this mm-hmm. really. And, and even just, like, the whole, yeah, you were saying before about forming a gang and the family, like, these yep. unusual very strange little family dynamics um and even the love story the love story feels like it's such a wes anderson yeah. love story mm-hmm. yeah you know those films that everybody would have expected that you've seen that you haven't this is one of this was one of mine before this week i've never so seen bottle Rocket. i was so shocked when you told us that yeah <laughs> like i've seen every other wes anderson feature i've yeah have not seen like this should have been something i saw at the time I don't know if it got much of a release out here originally. I don't know if it made cinemas or, but I just missed it. Um, this is flat out wonderful. I yeah. was, you're absolutely right. It is an absolute riot. Um, it's funny how uh, I sort of almost felt like, I, I felt this was somebody who was a natural filmmaker from bang on, but still finding his voice. Uh, so it's interesting that uh, that you two have sort of come almost from the other way at times, going, no, the voice is there, it's the craft that's still forming. Um, it's because obviously through budgetary, you know, restraints, as we we're saying, he doesn't get all of his bells and whistles and his costumes and his sets and and all of that. Um, but I, there's something about the command of humour and the 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 command of setting everything up and dealing with all these sort of story elements and dealing with the absurdity but making it all feel so real that is just natural from day one um i was stunned by it um he's but there's tra- as you say there's traces of his thematic interests here too there's a young man trying to impress a larger than life father figure there's you know this sort of affectionately funny portrayal of of people who think they have all the answers and really really don't of a confident moron um but never really being mean about it like there's this sort of affection he like i think he loves dignan even though dignan is an idiot mm. yeah. <laughs> who is going to get all his friends yeah. into lots and lots of trouble 
But Dignan has so much charm to him. I know. <laughs> um, I'd totally r- rub a bookstore for Dignan. <laughs> <laughs> With tape on you. You yeah. put the tape on the nose. Yeah. But there's even a Helvetica title card uh, that opens the film that puts it right into Wes Anderson land. More than anything, though, this film struck me as a comedy version of Mean Streets. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I felt like Dignan is Johnny Boy and um, and and Anthony is a much dimmer Charlie um, <laughs> who's, like, always looking out for him and feels, like, indebted to go on these sort of things. I think, you know, I, I, let's call it Mild Streets. Um, <laughs> so, and, and I didn't realise until afterwards that this is one of, fa- like, I, I sort of made this comparison after watching the film and then I found out it was one of Martin Scorsese's favourite films of the 90s. So obviously oh, he's yeah. seen a little of that too. Yeah. <laughs> Scorsese adored this and Rushmore and thought if any, like I think Esquire magazine asked him to pick who he thinks the next Martin Scorsese would be. And at the time, this was in 2000, he picked Wes Anderson. Yeah, well. Um, it's, yeah, it's uh, unleashes Luke and Owen Wilson onto an unexpected world. Unexpected world. Um, and it takes the shape because so many young 90s filmmakers came, kicked off their careers with the shape of the post-Tarantino caper film. Yeah. Even Paul Thomas Anderson with Heart 8 and mm-hmm. a lot. And I love that Anderson kind of gets that form and bends it to his will mm-hmm. <laughs> and kind of makes this sort of oddball version of that. I think a few key moments of the plot are seemingly discarded. There's a couple of robberies where there just doesn't seem to be any blowback or consequence I whatsoever. I was, I was thinking that rewatching it, it's just like there's absolutely no repercussions for the <laughs> None. at all. Like Nothing. come back to the town, it's like nobody ever mentions that these <laughs> things happen. Oh, uh, away also, from home. <laughs> also, I I did look it up, and uh, you know how I was saying that it appears in Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. It's stockings on their head that are like fishnet stockings. Ah, uh, yes, but. They do have this, the, the same line of, don't you have bigger bags? I have that same exchange. <laughs> I was half right and half wrong. <laughs> kind of neutral. <laughs> this film is so funny. Like, I just think, like, it's such a joy. I've, I definitely, I, I want to get the Criterion and watch it again and again because I'm so glad that this film was worth the 24-year uh, wait. Um, <laughs> it's pretty tremendous. Um Half-assed research, re- internet research also turns up that apparently, I, I haven't gotten an interview or anything to back this up. I don't know if it's just somebody's just from the internet, but apparently, of course, Anderson's original choice for the role of Mr. Henry was Bill Murray. Oh, um, yeah. Who, of course, would have tied the whole filmography together. But yeah. James Kahn is a lot of fun, particularly when he's that. he's battling his uh, Japanese henchman who's wearing his underwear. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. This whole film is a delight. Mm-hmm. Bottle Rocket is now available to rent or buy on YouTube movies, iTunes, and Google Play. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R. Welcome back. You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Sally Christie, Flick Ford, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. So grab the microwave popcorn, pop in the tape for our last film for the evening. Even then, as teenagers, we tried to put the pieces together. We still can't. Now, whenever we run into each other at business lunches or cocktail parties, we find ourselves in the corner going over the evidence one more time. All to understand those five girls. But after all these years, we can't get out of our minds. 
So tonight we are looking at the film debuts of three 90s indie icon filmmakers. We looked at Noah Baumbach's Kicking and Screaming. We discussed Wes Anderson's Bottle Rocket. And now we are at the first feature film directed by Sofia Coppola, 1999's The Virgin Suicides. In the suburbs of Grosse Point, Michigan, in a group of neighborhood, a group of neighborhood boys, now grown men, reflect on their memories of the five Lisbon sisters, ages 13 to 17 in the late 1970s. Unattainable due to their Catholic faith and overprotective parents, math teacher Ronald, James Woods, and his homemaker wife, uh, Kathleen Turner, the girls, Therese, Mary, Bonnie, Lux, and Cecilia, are an enigma that fills the boys' conversations and dreams. Flick, did this dreamy slice of modern american suburban gothic bewitch you as it did these boys (laughs) well it definitely did bewitch me when i first saw it as a teen um i remember being quite obsessed with this film or more so the soundtrack actually i got really into the soundtrack and um kind of swept up in that um the film itself and i remember thinking this at the time and re-watching it this week i don't know whether i and that into it. I remember at the time feeling as though the whole premise is that there's these um, five five sisters, is it right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, five sisters who are stuck in this kind of melancholic um, suburban home and for whatever reason decide to start killing themselves. And there's, there's not really, they're always, hmm. <laughs> I feel like they're always placed as objects within the film. They're always to be looked at and there's not really any sense of interiority to them and there's kind of hints of it um this is I'm just starting with all the things I didn't like about it so I can go on to things I did so don't worry it's overall positive but I just felt as though there's a lot of surface um surface level and I find that there are sparks to getting some sort of sense of what is going on um mainly through uh Kirsten Dunst is amazing in this she's got this really fascinating face that kind of can really open up into this warmth through her smile but then you get this kind of really deep sadness to her face as well and she uses it to great effect in Lars von Trier's Melancholia and you can kind of see this in her in her really early work as well such as Virgin Suicides but I what re-watching it I think it kind of brought up for me the things I do and don't like about Sofia Coppola's work. So the things I do love about her is that she's got this real close attention to sensuality and tactility and she's particularly focused in on girl girlhood and also that tension between like rebellion and complici- um, compliancy and um, I, I've always like really been drawn to when she when she has little scenes within it where you just get such a sense of the sisterhood and their their kind of um, what their lives must be like and that sort of sense of like over overpair, overbearing parenting. Um, my favourite film of Coppola's is The Beguiled and I really, really love how there's little sparks of that in this film. Um, so the sort of the the tracking shot of the girls' uh, trinkets and things like that on the the table, and um, the, even the attention to detail with the setup. Like I know she was inspired by like Japanese um, suburbia for um, while looking at locations because she wanted kind of this sense of like this real banality to the everyday and lots of stillness. And I think she really captures that. But there's a lot of also like fun little. Um, 
there's a playfulness to it as well. Like there's that bit where there's a cutaway and you can see that um, Lux has got his written um, Trip's name on her underwear and it's kind of a fascinating film in the sense that it's like a, a mix between the high school prom film and also indie film and it was kind of, it was, um, yeah, it was kind of an interesting mix and I think that because music is such a central thing for that time in your life, I love that she's, the soundtrack is is, is just beautiful um, and the, yeah, I, I suppose that really makes it and the, the music more than anything communicates that their story. Um, I do find that, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I just find sometimes that the, there's a bit too much style in this and it's amazing for a debut feature, but I, I don't know that there's always that much substance with with the story. Like re-watching it, I still felt that way. And I know that the author of the film, uh, Jeffrey Unides, is that he pronounced yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah, he, he, worked, he, he worked on the screenplay. So I'm not sure if that's, uh, I haven't read the book, but I wonder if that's maybe just a limitation of the story itself. I know that this um, is quite close to the book, I, I really, really love this film and going back and re-watching it, I found it just even more really captivating and beautiful. I know you were saying, Flick, how you kind of feel that the girls are placed there as objects, but I feel like it's almost a choose-your-own-adventure, this um, film where we've got these different narratives. Is it the boys' story? Is it the girl's story? Because they're definitely the ones that are telling them, telling these boys when this story ends and, you know, putting everything into place and these little clues that they're placing out. So I love the way that narratives played with that and that for me it feels like these girls have complete control over everything that we see here. Um, that's like a real delight for me. And mm. also um, I know we haven't... Uh, haven't got a whole heap of time so I'll, I'll go quickly but I was thinking I really enjoy the way that uh, Kirsten Dunst does portray her character Lux who is 14 in it and she is super sexually active in this movie and that just the approach of that and the way that it comes through is done so tastefully and really I think in a brave in a brave way I, I, I feel I don't think a lot of filmmakers would even try and um, take that on and it doesn't seem like although it is kind of a central focus of the film it doesn't seem like it's there to make it schlocky it's just you know it, it is an important part of the story that we see and um, yeah I, so I really love that I really feel like the girls do control this narrative that we see in this story and it's put together in such a way that it does feel like a memory. It's this mm -hmm. really kind of beautiful, and of course the air soundtrack plays such a big part of that, that, yeah, what part of this is real? What isn't, what's not real? What are we putting together? What's the boy's story? What's the girl's story? And yeah, I love this movie. It was really exciting to go back and watch it. Yeah, I actually do agree with you with the sexuality of Lux. I was thinking like, I just feel like as she went on in her career, she became a bit more nuanced with how she dealt with it. And I feel like her later films have a have a lot more to offer okay. in that respect. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I I was blown away by this when I first saw it at the movies 20 years ago. Um, and last night I watched it, well, a couple of nights ago I watched it for the first time since then, and it's just as impressive. I, I, I felt like the thing that struck me these days, though, is you know how critics nowadays talk about elevated horror, like whether that's true or not. That's a term they use. 
this comes back to something you were saying, Flick, before. This feels like an elevated high school movie. Mm-hmm. It's like made about and accessible to teens, but resonating possibly more powerfully with adults looking back to those years with idealized nostalgia and and kind of a stinging regret. Um, it's that it's the high school movie elevated to art. Um, yeah. There's something about uh, uh, this air score might be one of my 10 favorite scores of all time. I just, there's something about dropping into that. And I feel like it's one of those scores that really elevates the film as well. Uh, it's, it's their score, uh, Ed Lackman's cinematography, Giovanni Ribisi's narration and Coppola's direction. Those four things re- and also Dunst's performance, those handful of things really supercharge this film. And it's um, but the, um, and sort of make it linger in your mind where films of this kind might not usually. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a focus on behaviour and moments, which is something you were kind of getting at before, Flick. Um, whether it's the girls doodling in their notebooks during class and what they're writing or Mr Lisbon talking to plants at school as he's slowly <laughs> going insane or Trip bouncing off the walls, walking down the hallway by himself as his stone give the film a sort of a thoughtful grace and a kind of a God's eye view of this delusional human behavior. Cause it's a whole bunch of people just trying suburban people just trying to hold themselves together, mm-hmm. gossiping over the lives of others. I think the women seem like objects. Cause I think so many people in, in the, the world of the film see them as objects. Mm-hmm. I think it's a comment on that. It's a comment on like, nobody actually gets to know, gets to know who the Lisbon girls are because they're always this untouchable ideal and everyone's looking from the outside in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the girls have never really got a chance to know who they are because the, their parents have always told them what to do. They go outside, they've got all these expectations upon them. Um, they're exotic because they're five, these five blonde girls are all dressed the same by their parents. They're all kind of, and yeah, it's interesting. Jeffrey Eugenides was saying he didn't work on the screenplay, but he was, he did approve the film, but he said at one point he actually, if he'd have written the script, he would have recommended that different actresses play the Lisbon girls, depending on who's talking to them. Oh. Because they were amorphous personalities. Like to him, they almost weren't people in that sense. They were these amorphous personalities that yeah. the town, the su- suburb projected themselves upon. Mm. So it's all sort of part of this thing. Um, that idea, Cop- oh yeah. Sorry, I was going to say that idea fits in with what Sally was saying before about it coming across as memory as well. Mm. How you remember someone. Yeah, yeah. And the whole thing does have this sort of hazy memory. I feel like it's funny because it feels like almost one of the biggest influences on, like along with, of course, 70s Kodak. Um, it feels like one of the biggest influences on kind of the, what we call now the Instagram filter look. I, I totally agree. I remember when we could first start getting apps and that was one of the biggest things was that kind of kodak filter that, yeah, came from this. Yeah, it feels like this was one of the first films to do that. Um, I agree. And still incredibly distinctive now. And just to sort of end on this, that I thought as well as, reviewing these films chronologically for me it felt like a, a progression because it felt like Bornbach was someone who, who was trying to find his voice in the filmmaking skill Anderson was someone who had the filmmaking skill was trying to find his voice and this feels like Sofia Coppola just arriving fully formed on the ground like voice and and command all there if anything I'm sorry Flick but I think in her later career she's kind of disappeared up her own butt a bit. And I'm not I'm not really I haven't really been a fan of anything she's made since Lost in Translation. Except for maybe somewhere. I kinda like somewhere. Oh, you didn't like the beguiled. No. no oh um, good. I thought it looked amazing, it has great performances, but the film oh. itself really drove me crazy. Um but yeah, I, I think her first two films are incredible. 
but yeah, I, I just think um, it's such a yeah, it's it's such a it's such a beautiful, transportative, and melancholic film. Um, but yeah, so the Virgin Suicides is now streaming in some areas on Canopy, and is also available to rent or buy from YouTube Movies, iTunes, and Google Play. You are listening to Promise Screen on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flickford, Sally Christie, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. We discussed three debuts of 90s indie icon directors. We discussed Noah Baumbach's Kicking and Screaming, now streaming on Netflix and available to rent or buy on YouTube and Google Play. We looked at uh, Wes Anderson's Bottle Rocket and Sophia Coppola's The Virgin Suicides, both of which are available to rent or buy on YouTube rentals, iTunes, and Google Play. You can also subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts. And as well as being able to be found on Facebook, Primal Screen can also be found on Instagram at, at primal underscore screen underscore film. Check us out there. Next week, we'll be giving you another Spotlight episode. What will be spotlighting? You'll have to tune into those Facebook and Instagram channels to find out. A huge thank you to Morty Osborne for editing the Primal Screen podcast. Killer Carl Chapman for panelling and providing producing assistance for our show. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 